Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 2. I pray that this, the hymn we just sang is the cry of your heart, day by day, and with each passing moment, that you're trusting the Lord. Because we all are on a journey. Just like what we are going to be reading in Exodus, Israel's journey to the promised land, we too are on that journey to the promised land that has been promised to us, the new heavens, the new earth, the eternal inheritance that God has provided for us as we journey through this wilderness that we call life. As we look at Exodus chapter 2, we just come off of of Exodus chapter 1 where we see three of Pharaoh's great attacks against the people of Israel. The people of Israel, as we approach chapter 2, are in great need. In fact, we encounter a familiar theme here of a group of people that are absolutely helpless. As we look at our own literature that we have, our own stories, movies that we watch, there's countless stories when we look at this idea of rescue and helplessness, there's countless stories of the damsel in distress that's in need of her knight in shining armor to come and save her. Whatever time period that book may be written, whatever time period that movie may be be portrayed, there is someone that's in great need, and there's someone else who is coming to save the day. We read countless stories that are like that. We watch countless movies that portray the victim in distress and and the well-nigh invincible hero who brings rescue and relief. In fact, in our everyday lives, in our, in our thinking, in our categorizing of people, we often categorize people into categories of those who are in need of help and those who can provide help. So what we read of in Exodus 2 is a very familiar situation to us. That we have some people who are in desperate need. They cannot save themselves. And this theme, it burns within our hearts because we are all, whether we realize it or not, we are all in need of someone to come and save the day. The greatest macho man hero, the guy that seems to have no fears, there is even within that psyche... There is even the realization at points of life that I need a hero. That I do not have all that it takes to be sufficient in my life. You see, from the very first pages of Genesis, the reason why this burns within us is because because of the fall, we are all in great need of rescue. We, God did not create us even before the fall. 
He did not create us to be independent creatures. He created us to be dependent upon Him. To not look within for self-sufficiency, but to have to look without. That is the very temptation that Satan gave to Adam and Eve. It was the temptation to find sufficiency within themselves that I can be my own God. Well, as we come to Exodus 2 and we see this desperate situation, the need for rescue just continues to grow. It continues to climax. And this was no rescue that ordinary man could pull off. There was a need for divine rescue. And that's exactly what the author of Exodus, Moses, wants us to see. There's no way that anyone could pull off a rescue from the mighty Egyptian empire. There seems to be a dead end to God's plans that we've discussed that have been carried over from Genesis to Exodus. And the same thing is really true of us, that as we look at our needs, have you come to the point yet where you have said, you know what, there is no way that I or any other individual can be my rescuer. I need to stop looking at other things to provide rescue. I need to stop looking at other individuals. I need to stop looking at at luxuries that this life can bring. I need to stop looking at uh, external substances, whether those be uh, 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 addictions, whether that be alcohol, whether that be food. We need to stop looking at different forms of entertainment that maybe have a sense of immediate rescue, but at the end of the day, it always falls short. There's always a longing for more. You see, folks, what we need to see is that we need divine rescue in our lives. Divine rescue. And though at this point in time, as the Hebrew people are in Egypt, that this would be unknown to the Hebrew people when when these events are occurring, as we look at Exodus from a a literary perspective or as a book, as Moses penned this book, Exodus 2 is going to be full of hints of the rescue that was to come. The rescue of Egypt, or of, of the Hebrews from Egypt, and Moses is giving us hints of a greater rescuer that is to come through a savior and there are hints all over the place of this in exodus 2 that we're going to be bringing out in our study of this book and of course we know because we have the full scriptures genesis to revelation that jesus is the true rescuer amen But what we're also going to see throughout this specific book of Exodus is that Moses is presented to us as a picture of the kind of deliverance that Jesus will bring. So from this story, we're going to be looking at the hope that's presented 
in the second chapter of Exodus here, early in the story, that there is a rescuer that will come for the, Egypt, for the Hebrew people in Egypt that was going to mirror a greater rescuer that is going to save his people ultimately. And this morning and next week, we are going to look in chapter 2 at three indicators that rescue is on the way. Rescue is on the way, looking back at the specific context of our story for the Israelites in Egypt, but the greater hope that rescue is on the way for the people of God that is final and that is eternal. And as we're going to see, the main theme of this entire series, say it with me as we have put it on the overhead, only God can rescue and redeem. Let me ask you this morning, what are those things that you're still clinging to in your life to be your own rescuer? And God is hemming you in, showing you your inadequacy so that you will turn to Him for true rescue. Let's pray this morning as we begin our, our time in God's Word. Lord, as we look at Exodus 2, Father, how exciting the book of Exodus is. God, it, it paints for us a beautiful portrait that the rest of the Bible unpacks. Father, we see so many hints in these chapters that we'll be looking at that show us that rescue is coming not only for the Hebrew people, but for all of God's people worldwide. Father, a rescue not just from physical slavery, but ultimately from spiritual slavery. Father, all of us want to be our own heroes. Lord, I pray that today that You would humble us, that in order to see the good news of the Gospel, Lord, that we would see the bad news that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves. That, Lord, we fall far short when it comes to Your righteous standard. And, Lord, we fall far short of providing any true sense of rescue in our great need. Whatever those needs may be. Father, would You help all of us this morning to turn to You. Lord, those of us that have been saved for many, many years, those of us that have newly placed our faith in Christ, and Lord, those who have never placed their faith in Christ, that today would be the day that they hear Your call for salvation. They hear Your call to come, to lay down their lives, to receive the life that You offer to them. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to see the first indicator for the Hebrew people and for us as well that rescue is on the way. In verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, that a son is born. Now Nate read this passage for us this morning, but we're going to see that a son is born. This would not just be any son that was born. This would be a child of destiny. 
This would be a child that God brings into this world for a specific function. It's so interesting to read in verses 1 to 2, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. They say, now why is this so interesting that a child is born and that this is a child of destiny? Well, I think we first of all have to realize that this birth is surrounded by tragedy. This birth is surrounded by tragedy. You see, verses 1 and 2 present us with hope amidst chaos. The hope that is given to us in the first two verses of chapter 2 are right in line with the greatest threat that Israel is facing. What's the threat they're facing? The Hebrew babies are all being killed, right? All of the male babies. So it is as if God says to Pharaoh, I am going to defeat you at your own game by providing right where you are seeking to attack. And you remember we talked about last week that this battle between Israel and Pharaoh, between uh, the Hebrews and the Egyptians, between Pharaoh and Moses is ultimately a battle between God and Satan. And God is defeating Satan's plan right where Satan is attacking. That is our great God. It is so ironic that God is seeking to provide in the very area that Pharaoh is seeking to cause an extinction. God does not fear what happens in this world. Like we talked about last week, things do not take God off guard. Verses 1 and 2 present us with hope amidst chaos. And the hope is, is right there in the text that, that we read that a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife as his wife a Levite woman. The very mention of this tribe of Levi is one that produces hope because knowing the story of the Bible, it is the tribe of Levi that would act as priest to God. That already we have a hint in this story, that this is not the end for the Hebrew people. They may have thought it was the end as they're going through it, but God is dropping hints that this is not the end. We read in verse 1 that there was a marriage that this man from the house of Levi took as his wife a Levite woman. Marriage is presented as hope. In fact, Genesis 2.24, we read of that first marriage of Adam and Eve. And we, we read, even when man sinned, that the hope that, a, that an offspring, a seed, was coming to undo what Adam did was a result of marriage. A result of having children from which that promised seed would come. Listen, there's hope amidst chaos. There is hope. And then we even read in verse 2 
that the woman conceived, she did bear a son. And then you notice that weird phrase, and when she saw that, or uh, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. You think, well, that's a weird phrase, isn't it? I mean, so if, if uh, the parents saw that it was an unfine child, would they say, hey, have him? Here, here, we have a new one in here. No, that's not at all what the text is saying. You see, the text is giving us yet another hint. You see, that word fine child is the word good. A good child. The same exact word that God used in Genesis 1 as He created and He said after each day of His creation, it is good. You see, as we read this text, what Moses, as he is writing, is seeking to give us hints about is that God is going to do something new through this Son. It is a recreation of sorts. He is going to create a people for Himself as a new humanity, so to speak. He is going to take Moses. He is going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, call His people to Himself. And from this new creation, this new people, He is going to seek to bless the world. We also see, however, that verses 1 and 2 not only present us with hope amidst chaos, but present us with sovereign protection. You see, at the end of verse 2, Moses' mother hides him three months. Can you imagine how difficult that would be to hide an infant three months? It's hard enough when you don't want to put uh, your child in the nursery because they're so young to have them there for one hour, Right? But imagine having to keep an infant quiet because you never know when not only a soldier but an Egyptian resident is going to walk by here crying and go report you. But God sovereignly preserves this child. We already see hints as to where Jesus is a greater Moses, that, that, that Jesus in Matthew 2, 13-18 is taken into Egypt to preserve his life, to hide from King Herod. You see, let me ask you today, what chaos are you dealing with in your life right now? Because we all are dealing with chaos. We all are dealing with chaos because we live in a chaotic world due to the fall, and we are all chaotic people due to the fall, due to sin. Did you know that God shines the light of hope even in the midst of the darkest chaos of our lives? Did you know that the Bible says that in Christ we are a new creation? He is doing that new creative work in us and the light of creation is shining in the darkest parts of our lives because of what Jesus is doing? You see, we try to many times avoid people's problems, avoid our own problems, but just like what we see of God's working with the children of Israel, 
Pharaoh's trying to kill all the children. I'm going to provide a way right through the darkest, deepest parts of that attack and provide a child and protect him. God doesn't shy away from our problems. He says, I am going to provide in the midst of the darkest hour of your life. The greatest weakness, the greatest stronghold that sin has in your life, God to work through. He doesn't seek to ignore, to let that slide under the carpet. You know, that one's a little bit too much, so we'll just overlook that one. No, that's what we do. That's not what God does. God is providing a way. I like what one commentator states. It says, The birth of Moses is not merely about the birth of one man, but represents the birth of a people. God was doing something great here. This was a birth surrounded by tragedy. Yet verses 3 and 4 pick up on this theme of hiding him for three months and show us that this is a birth surrounded by preservation. God was at work here. No one could undo God's plans. Look at what verse 3 says. When she could hide him no longer, he's growing The concealment is just no longer in ops. And it says, look at what it says. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Imagine imagine this, this scenario. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Wow. We don't know all that was going through her head to say that 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 was the best option to to put a baby in, in a basket, make sure it can float, and then put it on the edge of the shore by all of the bulrushes. I mean, you gotta be out of options to do that as a legitimate means of preservation, right? But again, God provided God preserved it's so interesting that we can describe verse 3 to say that Moses was placed in an ark did you know that word for a basket is the same very word in fact the only other place in the Bible that that word for basket is used is Genesis 6 to 8 through 8 to refer to the ark that Noah built. What was the purpose of the ark that Noah built? It was to provide preservation. It was to provide salvation amidst judgment. In this case with Moses, God was judging because of sin, but He would place Noah and his family inside the ark for salvation for preservation. You see, Moses here is mirroring God's deliverance in the midst of judgment. God is delivering in the midst, in this case, of Pharaoh's judgment. God would save through means of an ark. 
And just like Genesis 6 to 8 describes the ark that Noah built, so we have that description here in verse 3. It was daubed with bitumen and pitch. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Moses is trying to make a point here. Moses wants to paint a picture of God's forming and God's deliverance through judgment. Just as Noah was delivered through the flood, the waters of the flood, so Moses would be delivered through the waters of the Nile River. In fact, water is a theme you see all throughout Scripture. We see another indicator, the next indicator of God's deliverance through water in the book of Exodus when? When God takes His people as Pharaoh's army is approaching the Israelites. They've hemmed them in. There's, there's the army on one side. There's the sea on the other. What does God do? He He again provides salvation through the waters of judgment. Why were those waters of judgment? Because as those Egyptians go through those waters, what happens? God's judgment. We see again Israel's deliverance as a new generation of Israelites in the book of Joshua. They come up to the land of Canaan and what happens? Again, as the priests take the Ark of the Covenant, their feet hit the water, the Jordan River parts. They go through on dry ground to pronounce God's judgment on the evil nations of Canaan. Jesus' baptism, as Jesus is baptized, He goes through the waters to symbolize not only that He is conquering as Israel was called to conquer as they went through the Red Sea and the Jordan River, but also as Jesus says, we can be baptized with the baptism He is baptized with. It was a calling of suffering, of judgment. You see, God would save through the waters of judgment. In Jesus, in dedicating Himself to His mission, in being baptized, in declaring that He is the Son of God, He is coming to rescue, would face God's judgment on the cross. And you know, folks, when we put our faith in Christ, God calls us to enter the waters of baptism. And as we enter the waters of baptism, it shows that we too experience with Christ, being connected to Christ through salvation, we have experienced through Christ that He has taken the judgment of the waters for us. That as Christ died, so we have died and we have been given new life. We pass through the waters of judgment and are saved. Folks, when we view and we unpack the significance of those things that we talk about in the Bible, we see that things like baptism are not just optional for the Christian. We are called to partake of these things. Are you here today? You've never been baptized? 
The Bible expects, if you are a Christian, that you will get baptized. In fact, in Paul's day, it would have been unthinkable for Paul to say, what, you're a Christian? You haven't been baptized yet? You see, we are called to follow Christ, to show our union with Him, that as He passed through the waters of judgment, we too have done so because of our union with Him, and we have now been given new life. All of that just from Moses and the bulrushes. <laughs> you see, Moses paints a picture of God's deliverance here. But then notice in verse 4, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. You see, this shows Moses' mother, her name being is Jochebed, her strategic planning. And in this strategic planning, she calls for her daughter to hide and to observe what happens to her baby. Now, Jochebed's daughter, Miriam, could never have known what God was up to at this point. But as we will read, she was greatly used by God. And this should encourage us that in the midst of our everyday lives, even when, this, when our scenario seems so desperate... And there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope. And you can picture Jochebed putting Moses in this little basket, this ark. The fear, the questions, the tears. And then Miriam watches this basket for her to one day be able to look back and see how God was using her in His great Sovereign plans. You see, folks, when we go through difficulty, when we go through trial, we may not experience in the moment how God is using that to further His purposes and His plans in our lives, to conform us to, to what God desires us to be. But we walk by faith, not by sight. Because we know that God is at work even in the most desperate of situations. You see, a son is born. And this son is a child of destiny. But we also see this morning that this child was a child of deliverance. Again, this was a special child. This child was born to be a deliverer. But before he could be born to be a deliverer, he first must be delivered. And we see in verses 5-6 to six, a very unlikely deliverer. Again, the plans of God. Look at verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river... 
while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. This is an unlikely deliverer. So Pharaoh's daughter is going down to the river to take a bath, and her young women, it says, are kind of walking along the shoreline, and all of the sudden, they see this ark, they see this basket by the reeds on the shore, and, and then sure enough, curiosity gets the best of Pharaoh's daughter, and she goes, hey, go get that for me. Let's see what that is. And then verse 6, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Can you get this picture in your mind? And what happens? She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now we're at a crossroads here in the story. How is is Pharaoh's daughter going to react that there's a baby by the river crying? She realizes immediately it's a Hebrew's, an Israelite baby. Let's put it that way. And she does take pity because it's a baby, but is that pity going to lead her to action, to rescue It's so interesting that as one commentator states, the the very same royal house which had decreed death was now made the instrument of life when Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile River. You see, she does have compassion on baby Moses. Her compassion contrasts with her father's ruthlessness. Her father's out to kill, and now she is out to preserve. And we see in verse 5, she sends her servant to rescue Moses. While later, for instance, in Exodus 5-2, we read that her father, Pharaoh, will refuse to send the people to worship God. You see, there's a great contrast here because God has the hearts of kings and rulers and princes and princesses in His hand. God causes the wisdom of the world to be foolishness, and that's exactly what He's doing right here. Is your strength, is your confidence, is your security on a system Is it in something that this world has to offer you? Listen, it is foolishness when it comes to God's sovereignty. It is absolute feebleness to put your confidence in other things. And not only does God ironically preserve Moses through, again, through the means of a child who Pharaoh is out to kill, but then he seeks to preserve this special young deliverer through the person that is closest to Pharaoh, his own daughter. I mean, God is making a mockery of these attempts. 
that the greatest ruler in the world is casting at his people. It's, it's almost comical. That's why the Bible and, and in Psalms and Proverbs, it says that, that God sits back and he laughs. He laughs at the, the decisions of, of rulers, of the ways of men that seek to go against him. Because it is futile. Folks, we need not fear. But then the second ironic thing that happens in this child's deliverance is that there is an unlikely reunion. You see, verses 7 to 8 give us hope again amidst darkness. Look at, look at what happens. His sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so she runs out of the bulrushes that she's hiding in, and she says, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Verse 8 says, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go! So the girl went and called the child's mother. Only God can orchestrate a story like this. I mean, so ah, there's relief. Her compassion leads her to want to care for the child. And then on top of that, there's a greater jaw drop in this narrative, in this story, that that. Miriam goes and gets her own mother. Now, what is interesting is that in, in this question that Miriam asked, shall I go call a nurse from the Hebrew women for you? This would not be an unordinary request. It wouldn't, take, uh, it wouldn't cause suspicion for Pharaoh's daughter for Miriam to get the mother. His, her, her and his mother. Why? Because you remember what's happening here. Babies are being delivered. Babies are immediately being found and taken and cast as an offering of worship to the false god of the Nile. And what you have left are countless Hebrew women that now are able to, to, feed, to breastfeed their children but have no child to feed. I mean, this is, this, this is like a, this could be, I mean, bring in thousands of women to choose from to feed this child because all of these women have the capabilities to breastfeed and have, they have no baby. But Miriam grabs her mother. There was no curiosity that more is at stake here. And not only is there hope here amidst darkness, but we see in verse 9, there's royal protection. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. <laughs> and here's another ironic thing. And I will give you your wages. Moms, how many of you in feeding your child late at night would have loved to be paid for that? <laughs> you, I mean, does the story get any more... Um, if it wasn't so, so serious and this actually happened and, and dark with the killing of the Hebrew babies, it would, it would almost be comical. Now she is receiving royal wages to care for her own son. As one person states, when Miriam secured Moses' mother as his nurse, the baby came under a powerful royal protection that no one could challenge. 
I mean, here, you, can you imagine this? Here you have uh, Jochebed now able to freely walk about and carry baby Moses around the town of fear. Moses had the royal stamp of Pharaoh on his head, so to speak. There was no more fear. And then we see as we close this morning the uniqueness, the first indicator for the Hebrews, our first indicator as we read Exodus as a book of the Bible. The first indicator for us that Moses gives us that rescue is on the way is that a son is born. This is a child of destiny. This is a child of deliverance that he was to deliver, but he himself was being delivered. And then thirdly, we see rescue is on the way because we now see in verse 10 a child that is in exile. A child that is in exile. Look at what verse 10 says. When, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him and this is Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. You see, what we see in verse 10 is first of all that he became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now why this is so important when, when, when Moses writes here, that he became her son. Is that word son in the Bible, even leading up to this point throughout Genesis, that's a loaded word. That is a, a loaded word that, that then takes us also further into Exodus and takes us really to the rest of the Bible. You see, Moses would be a preserved son to become Israel's deliverer so that Israel too would become God's son. And you can read that right in Exodus 4.23. When God wants Israel to be delivered, He wants Moses to approach Pharaoh to let His son go and worship. You see, this is a situation that is to present hope. That God, from the very first pages, has been in the business of receiving and making sons and daughters to Himself. And He will even do so in the midst of great tragedy in verse 10, it says that the child grew older and she, he was brought into Pharaoh's court. It's very similar as Acts 7, as Stephen recalls Israel's history and he talks about Moses and he writes concerning Moses, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So Moses is in a foreign land, the land of Egypt. 
an exile, not in the land that he nor the other Hebrew uh, people were called to forever be in. They were promised another land. They were not in that land. They were exiles in Egypt. And now Moses, who's picturing in himself the very nation, he's representing the nation here in this story, he himself is now in a deeper exile in Pharaoh's courts. He was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. But it is in this exile that he would face preservation. That he would be preserved to carry out the task that God had for him. By the way, side note, Jesus in the Gospels, as a greater Moses, as a greater Israel, he personifies the nation of Israel. He personifies Moses in himself. He too goes to Egypt to be preserved. You see, as we're going to conclude today, we're going to see that Moses is a picture of Christ. You see, he became her son in being sent off in this exile in Pharaoh's courts but he also personified deliverance by his very name. Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. You see, this word Moses has the, this, this idea of to draw out. You see, Pharaoh's daughter depicted a saving from the waters of judgment. The same waters that killed countless of other Hebrew babies, Pharaoh's daughter is pictured as this deliverer that saves her him out of those waters, those same waters of judgment. Moses is going to be used by God as God draws out his people from the judgment that he places upon the nation of Egypt. And folks, that greater son that was yet to come, the sign that rescue was on the way is that another son was born. And this son, Galatians, the book of Galatians tells us that he was born in the fullness of time, born from a woman, born under the law to become a curse for us so that we could receive adoption, guess what? As sons. You see, Jesus came to draw us out to Himself. Have you ever placed your faith in the promised Deliverer? Have you ever turned to Him in faith and you have said, God, I cannot be my own Deliverer, my own Savior, my own Rescuer. I give You my sins, my life. Would You take those? Would You wash me clean? Would You give me Your righteousness? And if that's true of your life, are you living like it? Are you living as if, yeah, I've been redeemed, I've been rescued, but man, that rescue is something of the past and I need to rescue myself in today, in the present, because ain't no one looking out for my back as much as me. 
ain't is something you pick up when you live in the South. And that is, whether we admit it or not, that is all of our attitudes, that is all of our spirits, save for God and His mercy and His grace bringing us down to the point where we realize that is just not so. We cannot be our own rescuer, our own deliverer. Do you need to today come back to the point of saying, God, I need to look to you again. The same dependence I had on you for the forgiveness of my sins is the same dependence I'm called to walk in every day of my life. I need you afresh. Remind me of the truths of what Jesus has done for me and the grace that he pours out to me every day. Let's pray. As we close today, I just want us to give thanks that a son was born. This son was not born of, of usual means from a man and a woman, but this son was born miraculously as God placed His very son in the womb of Mary. He was born Like Moses, he grew in wisdom and stature. And he knew of and learned as he grew of his redemptive mission to deliver us from a greater slavery that Egyptian oppression could only mirror. And as we close, we need to remind ourselves of who has delivered us and what He has called us to.